Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. On June 29th, the Supreme Court decided the case of CELA Law versus CFPB, declaring that Congress cannot give the head of an agency independence from the president unless it's a multi-member non-executive commission. Later this year, the court will return to similar questions in Collins versus Mnuchin, a case involving the Federal Housing Finance Agency. These disputes return our minds to the Supreme Court's landmark cases from nearly a century ago, Myers versus United States and Humphrey's executor, both considering the president's power under the Constitution to execute the laws and Congress's power to legislate the structure of his administration. Recently, the Journal of Supreme Court History brought its readers back to that era with a fascinating and entertaining new article on the Myers case. It's titled, Tension in the Unitary Executive, How Taft Constructed the Epical Opinion of Myers versus United States. And its author is our guest today. Robert Post is Sterling Professor of Law at Yale Law School. He served as the school's 16th dean from 2009 until 2017. He's a renowned scholar of constitutional law with particular emphasis on the First Amendment. He's also a legal historian who's currently writing Volume 10 of the Oliver Wendell Holmes Devise History of the Supreme Court, which will cover the period 1921 to 1930 when President Taft was Chief Chief Justice Taft. So, Robert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it was a pleasure to read this article. I loved it. And the moment that, uh, as you know, the moment I finished reading it, uh, I emailed you to see uh, if you could join the podcast. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. As I mentioned at the outset, uh, you're working on your history of the Taft Court. Before we dive into this case, how do you think of Taft overall as a Supreme, as the Supreme Court's Chief Justice. Uh, what's your assessment of Taft? Obviously, that is a series of podcasts in and of itself, but, but what is your, what's your sense of, of Taft? You know, it's funny. I, um, when I got assigned the Taft Court by the Devise, I thought I had drawn the short straw. Because, you know, if you ask uh, any five law professors to name 20 cases from the period 1921 to 30, I, I bet fewer than, uh, fewer than half could do it. Um, it's not a it's not a well known or dramatic period of history, uh, and uh, so I I went into it with some trepidation. I don't know whether you know much about Taft, but he was an inveterate letter writer. So there's eight hundred thousand letters that Taft wrote in the Library of Congress, which I've gone through. And when you get that intimately connected to a person, you actually um, begin to get a very affectionate feeling toward him. And I can remember reading through the letters and knowing he was about to die and feeling extremely sad that I would lose this friend whose letters <laughs> I had read. So I became close, um, pretty close to Taft in the course of writing this. You get uh, an inside story that is really non-pare. Somebody should edit those letters and, and, and publish them. They are just remarkable documents. And what emerges from um, these letters about Taft is that he is, you know, he's a, he's a staunch, a Republican conservative, but he's a man of immense goodwill and more or less a fair man, um, an extremely smart man. Holmes said about him that he had a first-rate, second-rate mind. Um, uh, he he was not a great opinion writer. Uh, he's not known for his opinions. He did write some, which are you know still good law. Carroll, for example, 
Um, but he was um, someone who was extremely fair in the governance of the court. He was open-minded. He changed his mind many times. Um, his great achievements were architectural. He, he changed the notion of what a chief justice was. We have a when Roberts gives um, a state of the judiciary address, it's as if he were the president giving a state of the union. That is, he's the head of a branch of the federal government. Taft invented that role for the chief justice. Uh-huh. He changed the administration of justice by creating the, what's now known as the Federal Judicial Council. So he saw the chief justice as managing the whole judicial branch and as needing the executive and administrative equipment to do that. That's because he came to it from his position as a president and he wanted to manage it. Just total innovation in the way. Um, the, the chief, the federal courts imagined themselves. Before that, it was each district uh, judge on his own bottom. Um, then after Taft, they became part of a system that had to address systemic problems. He changed the nature of the Supreme Court utterly by conceiving and getting through Congress the Judiciary Act of 1925, which made the Supreme Court for the first time a court that could uh, choose its own jurisdiction, which made it the manager of the system of federal law. Before that, it was simply a final court of appeal. He, um, as you know, he built the Supreme Court building which was, and he designed it and he got the money for it and he um, initiated the, the, he basically did the process that was used to actually build the building. And um, that was just an immense project that required intense uh, lobbying. So you get a sense of uh, Taft as someone who was um, uh, concerned with the shape of the federal judiciary, its functioning as a system, utterly revolutionized it. And, um, you know, the fate of the reputation of judicial reformers is unfortunately not a great one. So the first great judicial reformer is Oliver Ellsworth. And who remembers Oliver Ellsworth? <laughs> Nobody. Right. So you, you get to be remembered typically because of your opinions. That's why you remember Brandeis, you remember Holmes, you remember Stone, you remember mm-hmm. Sutherland. Um, Taft was not memorable that way. You know, it's fascinating. I, I mean, my, my basic layman's view of all of this is that you know, most chief justices are shaped by the office more than they shape it. And the exceptions are famous. Uh, uh, Marshall, Warren, Taft is, I would put in that same class. He's less famous, I suppose, as chief justice. In so, in so many ways, his impacts just took longer to manifest themselves, right? He, I think Churchill said, we build, we build our, we shape our buildings and then our buildings shape us. Yeah. And Taft's creation of the building itself Although I suppose he wasn't still alive when it was finished, but his decision to give it its own building surely was one of the things that allowed the Supreme Court to become what it was uh, 40 years later uh, and, and to this date. It's hard to imagine the Supreme Court playing the role it would have played in the 20th century if it were still in the basement of the Capitol building. I think that's utterly true. I mean, and architecturally, he considered it the expression of the changes he was bringing to the judicial branch that yeah. it was branch, that it deserved its own home, that it was separate to, but and equal from, and independent of, is the main point, independent of the control of, of Congress. So, you know, he, he attempted to be extremely influential with uh, judicial selection. He did things which are uh, would be totally unethical um, now. He, consult, he met weekly with, with uh, Harding, with Coolidge, and went over the list of judicial candidates. Um, he... Um, he basically picked the people who he would, uh, who Harding and Coolidge would appoint to the Supreme Court. He was um, quite an astonishing figure. 
Interesting. Well, as I said, it's, that's all a series of podcasts unto itself. And, and today we're focusing on this, this wonderful new article. In the show description, we've linked to the final version in the Journal of Supreme Court History. It was on SSRN, and we'll link to that as well. And, and as we never joked beforehand, if anybody can't find it, they can email him and he'll send a copy out. And I'd really encourage you, don't bother him for it. Just find it online because it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful read. And it begins, as I suppose one must begin, with the fact that, as you put it, uh, Chief Justice Taft didn't approach this case with, on a blank slate. You begin the article focusing, I mean, once you're getting the preliminaries out of the way, you focus on Taft's vision of the presidency as informed and embodied by his own presidency. Uh, so why don't you uh, describe that a little bit, Taft's presidency in, in theory and, and in practice? Well, you know, Taft um, was engaged at the time. The most famous uh, political dispute of the early 20th century was between Taft and Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt picked Taft to succeed him and then turned on Taft in mid-administration and ran against him in 1912. And one of the um, differences between Taft and Roosevelt was Roosevelt had what was called a stewardship theory of the president, which is essentially a modern idea of the president, that the president uh, was the um, uh, the official that collected the general will of the American public and funneled that national will into the federal administration. And he should do what was ever necessary for the welfare of the people. Herbert Crowley and the Promise of American Life is the first great articulation of this concept of the president. And he has Teddy Roosevelt in mind when he writes that. Uh, Taft, on the other hand, was, you know, he was, he was a man of the law. He was a judge in Ohio, a state judge. He was solicitor general. He was a Sixth Circuit judge. And he thought of himself primarily as a constitutionalist. He did not want to be president. He wanted to be uh, on the Supreme Court. Um, and that was his lifetime ambition. That was his idea of heaven on earth. And uh, uh, for the president, he said, the president is not a steward. The president has powers which are limited by the Constitution. And anything the president done has to derive from some grant of authority in the Constitution. So there was this debate between Roosevelt and uh, Taft. Over this, Taft wrote at least two books on the subject, the most famous being a book called Our Chief Magistrate. And uh, this is in the teens, the 19-teens. And um, it's a mistake, however, to think that Taft thought that the president was weak. He thought that the powers given were ample and that the president should have discretion to carry them out. And that in case there was a conflict between what Congress did and the constitutional power of the president, it wasn't at all clear which side should win. And in often Taft would say the president should win. And I think uh, the uh, Taft's idea of the presidency is best exemplified um, in the struggle over the budget. Mm -hmm. um, Henry Stimson, who served presidents from Teddy Roosevelt to Truman, said that of all the presidents he ever served with, Taft was the best administrator, by far the best administrator. So Taft was basically a manager. He was like a corporation CEO. You know, that, that was his MO as president. And uh, Taft realized that the federal government couldn't work unless the president could make a budget. So he proposed to Congress that there be a budget for the executive branch. Congress was opposed to the idea of a budget um, because then the various committees, which had jurisdiction over different aspects of the executive branch, would lose their fiscal control over these branches. And so Congress passed a law which said that uh, Taft could not report the financial figures on the basis of a budgetary uh, system, but had to report in the old, what's called Book of Estimates, 
which uh, Congress had uh, specified for each of the different areas. So Taft said to Congress, look, I'm going to comply with the law, but also I have an independent obligation to report to you that comes to me um, from the Constitution. And so I'm going to instruct uh, my cabinet to develop uh, budgetary figures under both systems, and I'm going to submit both systems to you because that's my independent constitutional authority. I mean, that's an example of how he thought of that. You know, you don't, don't, don't tread on me when I'm had my constitutional authority. Right. He, he took the removal power very seriously. You write about that in the article and, and you and I, uh, swapped emails afterwards about one of my favorite episodes from the Taft presidency. I'm a big fan of both Roosevelt and Taft, um, probably because of all their differences. Um, and, and the story of Taft and his, his feud with, well, I guess he didn't feud with Gifford Pinchot, the Forest Service, uh, agent so much as Pinchot feuded with him, uh, and, ultimately forcing Taft's hand, Taft fires Pinchot, and Pinchot, uh, his great patron, Teddy Roosevelt, jumps back into politics. And so Rose, Taft had seen firsthand the importance of the removal power, and, and I've always thought it, surely that was lingering, in the, at least in the back of his mind during the Myers case. But you also point out in the, in the preliminary parts of the article uh, Taft's really subtle understanding of things like civil service protection. You point out, well, and, and not just civil service protection, but the dangers of the spoils system, uh, the need to really take care with how the administration is structured and how its members are appointed. You say at the very outset of, of your article in a, an earlier debate, Taft had urged Congress to put all postmasters, including the ones like Myers who were in the case, into the classified service and remove um, the necessity of of the of confirmation by the Senate. This was seen as as a as a way to push back against the spoils system. And so Taft had a, I mean, some if, if students who only read the Myers case will assume Taft the way he decided that case and and the fact that he had been president, he must have been a sort of a unit just categorically in favor of strong presidential power to hire and fire when in fact it was it was pretty subtle and one of the, I think one of the great things about your article is that it really puts the Myers opinion in that context as well yeah I mean that's a very important thing to understand about Taft as a president he always complied with the very law that was at issue in Myers yeah. um, so the way in which I mean the law at issue in Myers said that you couldn't fire um, a first class post office postmaster without the advice and consent of the Senate and uh, Taft, uh, and the way in which traditionally that was done is you just nominate a successor. And the very fact of nominating the successor and the very fact of confirming the successor was thought to comply with the statute requiring the advice and consent of the Senate. And that's how Taft complied. And if the Senate didn't confirm the new appointee, the old one stayed in. I mean, Taft even complied with uh, uh, statutes which said you can only fire for cause. In fact, he appointed the first commission to determine cause for a member of the Board of Appraisers, and Felix Frankfurter was on the commission with Taft as president. So um, that, that's, the, that's the subject of a, of a great article right by Aditya Bomzai at the University exactly. of Virginia. Yeah. Sorry, that's I didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry about that. No, no. I mean, you're absolutely right. And and so uh, Taft complied with this. Um, he, he didn't protest, even though he did protest over something like the budget. So uh, it's, it's, um, it's subtle. And in point of fact, if you look at the civil service by the, say, the time Myers case is written, uh, uh, Congress had originally not, uh, the, the theory of civil service starting in the late 19th century was that um, we're going to take away the power of appointment for the president. And the theory was 
that if the president couldn't appoint someone from the spoil system, they wouldn't bother firing anybody. So there were relatively few restrictions on firing, except you couldn't fire for partisan reasons. Uh, by the, um, and then the, the reasons for firing people in civil service was mostly elaborated by executive order. Um, but uh, And Taft had such an executive order. And then Congress in 1912 um, passes uh, something called the Lloyd LaFollette Act. And they codify the Taft executive order about when you can fire civil servants and on what grounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so Taft was actually kind of responsible for the um, the grounds on which a civil service employee could be fired by the time they were writing Myers. Right. So, so in the Myers case, Frank Myers is the the Democratic activist who, uh, is, and that's your words, not mine, um, who was appointed to uh, the term as the first class postmaster in Portland, Oregon, to serve a four year term. Uh, he's fired by President Wilson. Myers sues. He dies uh, before the case is settled. I've always thought between the Myers case and Humphrey's executor, if you ever get fired by the president, don't sue. Uh, <laughs> Bad luck. <laughs> so the, the, so the, case, uh, the case is first argued in December of 1924. Um, uh, it's re-argued, isn't it? It's, it's argued once, and then is it argued a second time? Well, what happens is, if you actually look at the U.S. reports, they give the date of the argument incorrectly. They give it yeah. So it's, 18, it's 1924. Mm-hmm. And Myers, no one shows up to side to to defend Myers' side of the case because um, there's an estate. And then the court is going about to lose McKenna. So it's about to be an eight-person court. And they know that first. Second, they think it's too important of an issue to have it only argued on one side. So they're looking to appoint a, uh, um, somebody who would um, argue the case on behalf of the Senate. Mm-hmm. And so Taft at that time writes the attorney general, who is Harlan Stone. And says, can you appoint someone to argue this case? And uh, Stone can't get it done. And Senator Cummins, who was the chair, I think, of the Judiciary Committee at the time, can't get it done. So eventually the court um, appoints George Wharton Pepper, who's a great constitutional uh, litigator out of uh, out of Philadelphia, to argue on behalf of the Senate. As Stone, you say at the time he's attorney general, by the time the case is, is argued and ready for decision, he's been promoted, so to speak. Correctly. And then he has to be weighed. And then, you know, at the second oral argument, Taft says to the two parties, would you mind if Justice Stone sits? And they say, oh, we'd love to have Justice Stone sit. And Taft represents they have nothing to do with anything in the case. You said just a moment ago, you said the, you know, the court recognizes an important case. That's another theme through this article, not just that the court recognizes its importance, but Taft treats this case, sees this case as extremely important at seven in the way he handles the case, which we'll discuss in just a second, um, both in the way he takes it, sort of assigns it to himself, but then later returns to his colleagues for, for help. So the case is argued, he assigns, he finds himself in the, in the majority of a divided court, he assigns the majority himself, and then he flees to Canada. Right. He he uh, he goes to his his vacation home and what was it Murray Bay Murray Bay uh, Murray Bay and, and he goes up how how do how does a Chief Justice Taft write an opinion in a in a cabin up in Murray Bay Canada? Well, it's plain if you uh, read the correspondence between Taft and his law clerk that let's just say research was not the same then as it is now. Yeah. You know, I mean, he has a number of volumes and he reads those volumes and uh, that's his research. Yeah. yeah, he has all these. He has, I suppose, he probably has, he has books shipped up there. Um, many, many years later, Justice Scalia will refer to the Myers opinion in his one of his, his famous article, "Originals and the Lesser Evil." He says it's a, a really great example of of sort of modern originalism. Not perfect. Scalia critiques it, and he says 
maybe if done perfectly, it would take 10 years and 30,000 words or something. And we, exactly. reading the way that Taft was researching for the case, it might have taken longer than that to do it perfectly. So Taft spends the summer up in Canada. Uh, he drafts an opinion. He returns to Washington and finds that he's just totally dissatisfied with the, uh, the opinion so far. And that's when he calls in the cavalry. Right. So he's got, um, he's got on his side Vannevanner and Stone and Sutherland and Butler and Sanford. Mm-hmm. That's six. Yeah. Um, McReynolds in conference. One of the nice things about writing the Taft Court is, this is a real story. I was rummaging around in the attic of the Supreme Court one day and I came across a trunk. It was locked. No one had the key. So we had to call a locksmith. We unlocked it, found lots of goodies, but the treasures were, we found uh, many books, leather bound books, which were locked. Again, we had to call the locksmith back. They were Butler's and Stone's docket books. Oh, wow. So I can compare voting in conference to actual voting in, in this work. And it's really fun to do. But I, so in the conference notes for, um, for Myers, um, McReynolds passes. So he doesn't take a position. Uh, Brandeis and, and Holmes dissent. So he knows there's going to be a dissent from Brandeis and from Holmes. Yeah. Uh, but it, uh, he needs help in drafting his opinion. And it's a little unclear why that's true. It's the only case I know of in which um, it's anything like this happens. There's something close that happens when the chat board is considering um, the question of rate making. So the question of how you set rates for public utilities, very complicated question. Yeah. You know, Brandeis had the prudential investment rule and Butler had the cost of reproduction rule. And these were two great valuation experts and Taft, um, as a chief justice, and to his unbelievable credit, he sets aside a, a whole day for the court to debate, have a debate between Butler and Brandeis over which, which form of valuation they should use. So that's an unusual thing, but it's nothing I, like what happens in Myers. Where he I hope, I hope that's your, I hope that's your next Supreme Court, Journal of Supreme Court history article. That's fascinating. Well, that's, I, go, ahead, that's go ahead, go ahead. But, yeah. uh, so, so Taft, um, has these people to say, you need to help me with this opinion. And uh, it's because I think Taft doesn't really have a handle on what counts as an argument in a case like this. Um, How much does the history count? How much doesn't it count? These are all very complicated questions for it's not the case where you go, you know, work with the president. And um, and so Taft is trying to get this straight in his mind and he doesn't, he can't really. And uh, it's, as you, as you know, it's an extremely complicated area logically. When you, it's a different thing if you go on the vesting clause and if you go on the take care, you know, so disentangling all these different logical strands and figuring out what counts as an argument. I think that's why Taft um, has these people to his house um, on a Sunday to talk through what the opinion should be. In terms of the history, there's famously the, the so-called decision of 1789, the first Congress grappling with the the president's and, and or the, the Congress's power over removal of the first heads of departments. There's the Tenure of Office Act um, in the aftermath of Lincoln's assassination. Fascinating. Speaking of Taft's letters, you quote a le- you quote his his mea culpa to Justice Butler on yes. behalf of the Republican Party for the radical reconstruction, uh, the radical Republicans reconstruction era limits on Andrew Johnson. I that's that's really great. But and the follow up to that, by the way, I've always thought it's fascinating that unless I'm mistaken. The final version of the Tenure of Office Act expires the same year that the Interstate Commerce Commission is created. Really? Um, yeah, um, with 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 obviously independence, a measure of independence from the president. We'll get back to the ICC in a little bit. 
Can I just say about the, please about do, please the do. letter to Butler? It's not merely a mea culpa for the Republican Party. Butler is a Democrat on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a mea culpa for Taft's father. Taft's father was a Republican oh. attorney general. And in this letter, he says, my father was a fair man, but he supported this act and he hated Johnson. And, you know, later he'll talk about these radical Republicans as though they were off the wall. And Taft adored his father, who supported this all the way down the line. Wow. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Um, he says here, uh, as I study the injustice that the radical Republicans did to Andrew Johnson, I am humiliated as a Republican. My father was a just man, uh, <laughs> but I thought he sympathized with those who voted to impeach Johnson. He, he goes, he goes on. Oh, this is just a great letter. Um, okay. So, so, so Taft and his colleagues are drafting the opinion. And here's where the newly, the newest justice, Justice Stone really kind of takes over the narrative. So Justice Stone is like the new boy on the court. You know, he comes in and you have to understand, you think of Justice Stone now as Caroline products. You think of him as a kind of liberal. But Justice, but Harlan Stone, when he was appointed, was a guy who he had been dean of Columbia Law School and he had just stepped down and he went to work in his own law firm. And he was basically representing J.P. Morgan in his interest. And he was opposed in his confirmation hearing as a J.P. Morgan right wing conservative Wall Street lawyer. And when he went on the court, his favorite people were Vandevander and Butler. He really didn't like Brandeis. He held Holmes in awe, but thought he was kind of off the wall in many respects. And so he comes in on the conservative side of the court, yeah. um, Stone. And uh, and uh, uh, Taft is thrilled to have him on the court. And Stone comes in and, you know, he's an academic. So he's an academic and he looks at what Taft has written and he thinks, oh, my God, this is, you know, I wouldn't accept this in a large and so he takes Taft's um, opinion and he cuts up all the different paragraphs and he rearranges them according to a logical order. And uh, and he's also like um, Taft has written his opinion to allow a civil service to make sure he doesn't question the constitutionality of civil service. Yeah. And and um, Stone is saying, look, if someone is doing a purely executive office, you should be able to fire them whether they're an inferior officer or not an inferior officer, as, and whether or not their appointment has been delegated to a head of department or not. So Stone is basically taking a position um, um, that there's a what we would call now a unitary executive position, that the president should have the um, uh, unalloyed power of removal for anyone doing purely executive functions, whether or not they're civil service, whether or not they're inferior officer, um, and uh, and he keeps pressing Taft on that point, and Taft keeps saying, "Get back, stay yeah. in your corner." <laughs> and and uh, he writes to his uh, Taft's Lord Chancellor, Taft's right hand guy was Vandevander, who was an extremely impressive justice from the point of view of the internal workings of the court. And he writes Vandevander and says, "You know, our 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 you know Stone is like really captious and really not very helpful, but you know he means well." And he writes his son that, you know, he smacks too much of a law professor. He doesn't have a sense of being practical at all. Yeah. I've, got, I've got the quote here. I just love this uh, quote. Youngest member Stone is intensely interested and is a little bit fussy and, and capricious in respect to form of statement and betrays in some degree a little <laughs> of the legal schoolmaster, a tendency which experience in the court is likely to moderate. Now, of course, Stone himself goes on to be chief justice. And I, I, kind of, I hope that some of the, the newly appointed justice in his own tenure uh, give him a hard time as well. It would only be, it would only be fair. 
Um, well, one thing you should know about stone, you know, if you talk about dissent during the tap courts, about 85% of opinions are unanimous. Yeah. And the collapse of unanimity in the court happens, it just so happens, when Stone is appointed chief justice, that's when it begins to plummet to modern laws. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing about the letters, so when, you know, I, I wrote a short little blog post uh, referring to your, your article when I came across it. And one of the things I love is the, the letters that you're referring to, they're all available. I mean, you got to kind of dig around, but they're all available online at the Library of Congress. You can, if you, if you try hard enough, you can click through and find these letters. The tap letters are online. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's fabulous. Yeah, it's um, it takes some real digging, and it's, I mean, it's, I mean, it was a quiet, it was a quiet Friday night at the White Household <laughs> as I was digging through these things, um, after the kids had fallen asleep. But I, uh, it, it's just these. I we were you and I were joking beforehand that somebody needs to edit a volume of these letters. I I totally agree. I, it was just captivating reading these these letters, especially again things like this one where he's he's. I guess that one's to his. That's his literal brother, right? Not his brother on the court. Or is that this letter is to yes. Taft's real brother? Of course. Um, complaining, complaining about Justice Stone. So, okay. No, I, love you, you fact, I, I just learned something from you because I didn't know they were online. This is wonderful yeah. for me because when I did this, I was in the archives for months. <laughs> Well, I have to, well, let's be, to be very clear here, it was, your job was a lot easier in the archives. The finding the letters on, online is a, is a, is a, is a challenge. Um, gosh, I hope I haven't misstated. Maybe it was the Roosevelt letters. Um, nobody hold me to anything I just said. Um, uh, so you mentioned, I want to pick up on the civil service point. So Taft is writing this opinion. And as we already said, he's, he knows very well what the civil service is. He knows its role as a, as, as a, a, a counterbalance against the old spoil system. Um, and so he writes the opinion studiously avoiding really coming down hard on the question of the, uh, on drawing the line that might bring the civil service into or outside of the executive power framework that he is working through. And Stone really presses him on it. In fact, they get a, a, a memo. Um, he gets a memo from Stone on November 30th Stone is worried about the case of United States versus Perkins, an 1886 case involving the, the dismissal of a naval officer. Um, and you write, Perkins was the constitutional rock on which the federal service, civil service was erected. Uh, and so Taft is trying to cobble together this majority opinion, a strong statement in favor of executive power. I have to be very delicate in how he grapples with the civil service issue. That's correct. I mean, he is navigating between he, he, as a practical politician and also someone who doesn't like the spoil system, mm-hmm. he does not want to undermine the civil service. And so he crafts the removal power, which he defends in Myers as a function of the joint, the take care clause and mm-hmm. the appointment power. Yeah. I mean, so it's those two things which go together, which of course would exempt the civil service. Right. But since the civil service, uh, are not appointed by the president, uh, and as you say, this creates a paradox of sorts in his opinion. It claims great power for the president to appoint officers, but it gives great power to Congress to sort of on the pre- for the the, the 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 premise of it, which is who will be appointed by the president and and who will be brought down to appointment within the bureaucracy itself. Correct. I mean, that's and so. On the one hand, he says, "I need to be able to do all of this in order to uh, fulfill my obligation to take care that the laws are faithfully executed." Yeah. Yet, on the other hand, he gives the power to Congress the power to say who we can and can't remove um, at will by um, vesting the appointment of any inferior officer in the head of a department. 
And so logically, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And McReynolds is the one who points that out most, most, uh, let's say, vociferously in his, in his dissent. Now, is said, look, it, you know, before, before the eight, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, for the first many decades of the 19th century, first class postmasters were not appointed by the president. So how, how did the president manage to take care that the laws be faithfully executed? This is a, his word is, this is just vapors, this argument. The, uh, the, the language in, there are, there are moments in, in Taft's opinion and Myers, uh, they get, it's pretty flowery prose. The, the lines about the, the administration, or at least the, the top levels of the administration of the president's family, his alter ego, um, he needs, instinctual trust he places his instinctual trust in these people um it's it, it, in fact when he describes it as a family it always reminds me of the what's the, the quote all happy families are the same all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way um, yeah and uh that again that, when i see that language I, I again i always go back to the pinchot affair and just <laughs> the and but what's interesting is the 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 language that he has there really does echo in that opinion echoes the his his dismissal letter to Pinchot about instinctual trust. Taft gets that there is there's this line you can't really draw precisely either on who should be subject to the executive power, what the exact what justifies a president either in law or in practice in firing somebody. In some ways it's impossible to draw these lines. But Taft is carving out these two sort of categories. And leaving, leaving the space in the middle is a little fuzzy, but he's, he's created sort of this paradigm of, of who falls within the removal power, the unfettered removal power, and those for whom they, they don't fall within that power. Yeah, well, he draws a bright line. He says, yeah. you know, if the president appointed them, then I get to remove them alone. Yeah. And if I don't appoint them, then, uh, you know, you can set the conditions because you've created the office with these uh, characteristics. Um, and then, but somehow or other, that's supposed to try to the functional argument about take care, and that's what's very fuzzy. Yeah, well, what, what also gets fuzzy is the, the 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 part where he, separate from civil service, he tries he puts some sort of he draws sort of a fuzzy line around quasi judicial officers. Right? He says that he writes that that there might be some officers with quasi judicial duties. For whom it might raise constitutional questions whether the president tried to intervene in a given matter. The president could fire, the, could remove the officer afterwards. Um, but but Taft is very he's, he is sensitive to this question of quas of, of quasi judicial officers. And you say in the in your in you write in your article that he even in drafting the opinion was grappling a bit with where the the Interstate Commerce Commission, the sort of the quintessential quasi-judicial uh, agency, would fit into all of this. So let's talk a little bit about that. So in addition to the civil service, the the ICC and the and the and the, and the, the yeah. regulatory commissions. So he really doesn't. I mean, the opinion is not really constructed around these axes of quasi-judicial, quasi-legislative. That comes in later mm-hmm. in Greece's state. So the 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 way in which Taft is um, the way in which this comes up in in Myers, the 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 difficulty in Myers is one that comes out of a 19th century case called Kendall, mm-hmm. and in Kendall the court holds um, that of course Congress can set the duties of all executive officers. It can define the obligations of the office. It can define the term of years of the office. It can define the salary of the office. 
and define the obligations of the office holder. And so it was widely accepted um, by the time of Myers that Congress could uh, say to an executive official, you have to decide this rather than the president. You have to, you know, forward these things or you have to make this determination or you have to sign off on this decision, um, et cetera. So Congress gets to determine the jurisdiction of an office, the obligations and the powers of an office under the president. And in fact, this was, uh, Taft agrees with this. He said, this is a legislative prerogative. And during World War I, when uh, Wilson wanted to restructure the whole executive uh, uh, branch in order to fight the war more efficiently, there was something called the Overman Act. And Taft at that time was a journalist. He write, I mean, he was a professor of law at Yale Law School, but he had a he had a weekly column in the Philadelphia Ledger and Minneapolis Star and Tribune. Oh. And he writes a column saying that's an unconstitutional act because Congress can't delegate to the president the ability to say what the offices are. That's a legislative function. Yeah. Um, so that's why I say if you read the actual history, it's much more than in the in the journals. So uh, uh, he he uh, is very strongly of this mind, as most people are. And so the interesting thing that Myers says is that yes, Congress can take away certain decision making from executive officials, meaning officials in the executive department. We're not now using conclusory terms like quasi judicial, quasi legislative, because heaven knows what that even means. Um, they're saying it's an, it's a, an official in the executive department. They can say to them, you have to make these decisions. And it does, Congress does these things when it wants to insulate certain kinds of decisions from political influence. So uh, think of the Court of Claims, which was uh, an Article II court for, you know, they don't want it being political. They want it to be judicial. Or think of the Federal Reserve, which is created under the Wilson administration. They don't want it to be political. They want it to be technical. So there's various ways in which Congress was creating decision making, um, which was insulated from the political management of the president, who is conceived of here as a political officer elected by the polity and responsible to the polity. And so when you insulate the decision, you're insulating it from the political influence of the polity. And Taft goes out of his way to say in Myers, well, they can do that. That's their prerogative, Congress, but I get to fire the person, which of course brings it right back into politics. Yeah. And the first person to notice this paradox was Corwin, who said, um, who said, I think the year after Myers, he publishes a very famous article in the Columbia Law Review, says, well, you know, um, at home, uh, Taft creates this paradox where on the one hand, Congress can insulate it, but on the other hand, the officer who's been insulated gets guillotined if he decides the wrong way. So yeah. that can't be a rational way to decide that either. But you, you point out in, in this part of the of the article, you, you, we write, uh, during the pendency of the case, Taft toyed with the thought that Myers might not apply to the ICC. And then several days after the opinion was released, Taft expressed anger at Justice McReynolds, quote, reference to judicial offices, which in Taft's view had nothing to do with the case because we only decide as, as to an executive office. What do, I, I was, I was, I keep returning to that point in your article. What do you mean by that? And what do you think Taft meant by that? Well, that's Taft's letters and that's his post hoc rationale, but he yeah. didn't write it that way. So the opinion is not written to, opinion is not written in a way, um, that would, um, that would anticipate Humphreys. It's just not. And he writes it in a very broad way. He writes it like anything executive in the executive branch, meaning that I, that the president appoints. So he's putting the axis of presidential control and presidential appointment in the actual opinion. Yeah. Later, 
afterwards, he has these second thoughts, which were not exactly fair to the way he had written the opinion. It may only be in the back of his mind. While Myers was pending, or Pepper, who was representing Myers um, in this, the, the senator from Philadelphia, brings to uh, the court's attention a decision by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which came down, I think, in uh, uh, while it's pending in 26, um, mm-hmm. to say, you know, the Philadelphia court, the Pennsylvania court says as a matter of Pennsylvania law, the governor can't fire the equivalent of the ICC or the FTC in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And Taft says, well, that has nothing to do with us because whatever, but he doesn't, it doesn't find its way into the opinion. Yeah. So this is, I, this is something I keep thinking about. And so I'm going to keep badgering you on it. Um, cause I've thought a lot about the origin. I mean, not a whole lot, but I've thought more than the average man on the street about the origin of independent commissions and the fact that they were created, the ICC was created as much to be an, a replacement for an adjunct to the courts than for trid- direct executive power. Um, I, I read this and the first, my initial reaction when I read that paragraph in your piece was, you know, Taft didn't put it that precisely in the Myers opinion, but what if his, all those references to executive power, what if, Taft himself presumed that meant something like purely executive power. I mean, what, I guess what I'm saying is, what if he had a distinction in mind between executive offices and quasi-judicial offices that he didn't draw the distinction explicitly, but his own discussion of executive power was premised upon that sort of distinction, right? Given that independent commissions long predated Myers, and given that terms like quasi-judicial, they weren't really invented in Humphrey's executor, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm probably just reading my own preferred history into all of this. I just, that, that line about judicial offices and the fact that that's how Taft sort of rationalized why the, 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 the after the fact that Myers didn't apply to ICC. I mean, was it just a rationalization or couldn't have been sort of an elaboration of a, of a point that was implicit in his reasoning, but he just hadn't explicated? Well, it could be. I mean, I don't want to say it's not. Uh, all I'm saying is he doesn't write it that way. Yeah, that's and, true. You're right. You're right. And two, he writes it in a way that plainly seems to indicate that he can fire um, these independent commissioners if they make the wrong decision. And that's the way it's taken instantly by every contemporaneous commentator. Right. And it, McReynolds is saying it in dissent. So McReynolds sees this and he says this in dissent. And it's taken that way in the passages, which seem pretty explicit that... You know, so it could be what you're saying would be in the back of his mind. If so, then um, then it's a fault of his expression because he yeah. doesn't really articulate that. And you can see from behind the scenes, it's salient to him. He yeah. understands it, and yet he doesn't. That's that's what one can say with some degree of certainty. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And of course, the most famously, the the people who staffed up FDR's administration, uh, including uh, Landis. Landis uh, just swore up and down that Humphrey, the firing Humphrey was an easy case under Myers. Um, yeah, because and, you know. he, and, and what he says to Roosevelt is it came up in the court right. and, and Taft was explicit that I'm not going there. Right. Exactly. So uh, at the end, in all of this, you write Taft confessed that Myers was quote, the hardest case that I've had uh, in the matter of work since I've been on the bench. And he says, quote, I we're convinced we are right. I'm hopeful that the question will not be agitated and that the decision may remain as a permanent okay. constitutional feature of constitutional construction. Yeah. Well, as, as people say, spoiler alert, it didn't quite work out that way. Um, you're, you, you, 
your article is, I mean, you have, you, you offer some criticism of, of Myers along the way, that part of the opinion we discussed earlier about civil service uh, and Congress's powers is, is, is sort of a schizophrenic feature of the opinion. Um, you, you don't write the article to make an argument. Um, but I guess I'm just asking, having written the article, what are the broad lessons that you, you want your reader to draw from, from this, this story? Um, well, I, I think we're, I, I, you know, it's a very interesting thing because I'm no scholar of the uh, unitary executive or executive. That's not my area in particular. But I did become, it was fascinating to watch this, just to see this from an historical point of view. And then, you know, now I'm just teaching introductory karma. I just taught Morrison. Yeah. And and it's very interesting when you read Scalia's dissent in Morrison and he says, you know, any attempt, any congressional attempt to dilute the executive's authority over executive officials is unconstitutional. But you, know, you read a sentence like that and you go back to Myers and you know Scalia can't be right because, of course, Congress can set the jurisdiction of the office, set the, set the decisions to be made by the office, you know, do um, define the office. And if that's right, then, of course, they're entirely controlling the executive's ability to control. So there's no easy, the conclusion I come away, there's no easy solution here. You will have to be extremely practical in how you think about this to construct a working government where the president can do what we want the president to do. And yet the thing is subject to rules of law. We want them to be subject to rules of law. So I guess the bottom line is it's complicated. <laughs> so in, in the most recent decision on, on the removal issue, the CELA law case, um, where the court holds that the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's director cannot have sort of the traditional form of independence from the president, which Congress had given him, um, because he's not, he's, he's just the one director. He's not a multi-member commission like the FTC or all the other famous alphabet soup of independent agencies. The court goes back to history there. Uh, they, they drop a, in a footnote the fact that the Humphreys executor court sort of assumed or was premised on the idea that the FTC was not purely executive, that it did not have substantial executive power. And they sort of hold open the idea, well, maybe we'll need to reconsider that someday. But one line really jumps out at me, and, and you and I haven't talked about the SELA case, so I don't presume that you've looked at this recently. But when they describe the exceptions to the normal power of presidential removal, um, one is, is uh, inferior officers with limited duties and no policymaking authority. That's the Morrison case. They say an exemption for, quote, multi-member expert agencies that do not wield substantial executive power. And I have to say, those of us who watch the case and think about administrative law and structure, we're really wondering what this means. Uh, ex multi-member expert agencies that do not wield substantial executive power. It's like they're inviting the next rounds of litigation over whether, say, the FTC wields substantial executive power or, or other agencies. And if they do... Uh, what's, what's the upshot of that? Does that mean they can't have their independence or does that mean they need to lose, uh, that aspect of their executive power? That's not so much a question as an, as an observation. It's, it, again, it, it's one of those things that sends us all back to a century ago to think about how Taft, uh, and his colleagues and those who've soon followed after him grappled with these issues in the first instance. I think you're totally right. I mean, I think it, it's a, it's an invitation to, you know, take these issues and explore them further. I mean, I, I guess all one can say, like now I'm speaking as an historian, um, nothing in this is settled by the text. Nothing in this is settled by the decision of 1789 um, because that was about principal officers. And so 
um, all of it has to be settled on a sense of practical judgment about how to make the government work best. And then we need criteria for best. And that, you know, that's going to be debatable, but that's a, you know, that's a debate we need to be having. Well, if they do return to these issues, hopefully the justices and their clerks and the lawyers and scholars, everybody will return to uh, the histories of this era a century ago uh, and, and try to see these issues through the eyes of Taft and others. And in that respect, uh, I'm, I'm so grateful that you wrote this article and so grateful that you could join us today. Robert Post, thanks for being our guest. Thank you, Adam. Again, the, the article is titled Tension in the Unitary Executive, How Taft Constructed the Epical Opinion of Myers versus United States. It appeared in the recent issue of the Journal of Supreme Court History, which is the official journal of the Supreme Court Historical Association or Historical Society. And that's a, it's a journal and an organization, uh, well, well worth signing up for. I can tell you that firsthand. Uh, so look it up on the journal's website or on SSRN. Uh, or just look in the description of this episode. We'll link to both, uh, both, both, both versions of it. Uh, thank you all for joining us today. Please join us for the next episode of Arbitrary and Capricious. Mm-hmm.